may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Strength to Strength. Thank you for getting up early this morning and joining us here, some of us earlier than others, depending on the time zone. Um, this here at Strength to Strength, our goal is to humbly know and share the truth of the kingdom of Christ and to put out talks that will stimulate spiritual growth in our hearers and listeners all over the globe. And this morning we have Brother Darvin Martin joining us from Western Massachusetts, where he lives with his wife and eight children and has a busy life there. Um, he is part of the Disciples Fellowship there in Western Massachusetts, and we're happy to have him on here again. I believe this is your, is it your third time sharing on Strength to Strength? I think so. Yeah, excellent. So we're happy to have you back here with us again this morning, sharing on tips on how to read the Bible. Before we get started, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this new day. We thank you for your abundant mercy, for without your mercy, Lord, we would be lost. We thank you for your care in preserving a written word for us over the millennia. Thank you for the truth that is contained there. Open our eyes so that we can find new things in your word, O Lord. Be with Brother Darwin as he shares this morning. Anoint his lips. May his inspiration be communicated to each one of us. May the Holy Spirit be present in interpreting the word to us. Just pray that we would go forth from this meeting with a, a better understanding on how to rightly divide the word of truth. Be with each listener. Lord, may each heart be prepared to hear and to do. Bless this meeting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead, Brother Darwin. All right, good morning and welcome. So as Sam already introduced, we want to talk a little bit this morning about some tips to reading the Bible. And as I share these, uh, as I share this, uh, it's by no means exhaustive. But uh, the background to this is that in our, in our home, as our children learn to read, we purchase a Bible for them and try to help them establish a habit of reading regularly. And it occurred to me earlier this year that I'm not sure if I really spent the time that I should have to maybe help them to think about what they're reading and how to, how to understand it. So I'm not talking this morning about, you know, whether you should read five minutes a, a week or a half an hour a day. I want to talk about more how to gain understanding from what we're reading. And um, for my own personal experience, I have a little story about that. And that is that when I was young, as a teenager, I enjoyed apologetics. I felt 
I, I had this um, kind of this passion to find something that I could prove the Bible is true. And I remember coming across this statement that's made numerous times in, in the scripture where it says something about unto this day. An example of this would be in the book of Joshua, it tells the story of Achan, and I'm not going to tell you that story. I assume you know it, but it says that they raised over him, over Achan, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And, if, and I latched onto that, and I, I said to myself, this is a proof. If we can find, you know, for, for instance, if we could find the pile of stones, or if we could find a place called a the Valley of Achor, this would prove the accuracy of the scripture. And I was very deflated to realize <laughs> that it doesn't work quite that way. And and so, it, you know, it's a very simple thing. You, uh, you can laugh, laugh with me about that. But, but, but still, it's something that, um, you know, maybe we don't understand if we're not thinking about, you know, who, who wrote this and when it was written and what it meant to the original audience. So it's some of these things that I want to explore today. And I want to just go ahead and start here with, with the main point. And if you disagree with other things that I say later on, that's okay. But I hope that we can agree with this basic answer that I have of how we should read the Bible. And it's with the intention. It's with the intention to identify the author's intent. It's, it's with the goal, I should say. It's with the goal to try to understand the author's intent. That's not to say that I always get that right. But... But that's what we're aiming for, right? That's how we read any book. When we read a book, we think about what is this person trying to communicate? And in, in understanding what he's trying to communicate, that's when we get the purpose of the book. And I believe that's, that's the same way with the Bible. So uh, this, like I said, is starting with the conclusion. And I'll fill out with uh, more details from here. But but I do hope that we can all agree on this uh, on this basic premise. To be able to understand the intent of what is written, we need to understand something of the context. And the context, as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, is the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. Context does several things. Context, uh, let me just back up and say, what, what's going on with context is that there's a big story. We don't always see the big story. Sometimes we just see a small detail, but the context is like the big story. And so what context does is, is several things. Number one, context determines the relevance. If you use a computer, and in using a computer, you use a mouse. There's at least two buttons on the mouse. And the right button, when you click on it, almost you know, in, in many places, it'll pop up a small menu. And this menu is called a context menu. The reason it's called a context menu is because it's only presenting the, the functions of interest to that in that context. There's 10,000 things that you could be pressing. 
there's 10,000 commands that you could be going after, but a context menu is, is a menu that's relevant to the, to the present uh, thing that you're selecting. Roads are a similar, another example of this. Did you notice that you know, in, in the Americas, <clears throat> we drive on the right side of the road. Did you notice that most of the road signs on the right side of the road are facing, the road signs that are facing you as you drive are on the right side of the road? Well, that's because that's where you are when you ought to be seeing them. And, and as I was preparing this, I realized that there are some exceptions to this. And the no passing zone, for instance, that sign is on the left side of the road. So that's like while you're on the left side, while you're making the, while you're passing, if we run into a zone that it's where you're not to be passing, they want to communicate that to the relevant audience. And that's you if you're on the left side of the road. And so it, it tells you this is the wrong zone, get over. And so uh, context determines relevance. But another thing that context does is context clarifies meaning. And I said earlier that what you have going on is a large story. And I like to illustrate this with, with roses. There's a lot of detail in roses. There's, there's rose gardens and there's you know, a lot that goes into a rose. But what we have sometimes is simply a rose petal. And maybe if you are in the house one day and you see a rose petal on the floor, you can, you can conjure up in your mind the, the rest of the big story. You can think, well, maybe my wife was um, bringing roses, uh, taking roses to somebody, or, or you might come up with some idea of why you found a rose petal on the floor, but it's all meaningless if you don't actually know. And, and, and this uh, illustrates a dilemma that we have when we uh, read the scripture and we, we might just read one verse or a very short passage. It's like picking one rose petal, but without the greater context, it's left to our imagination about what is actually going on here. And, uh, you know, one place where this is illustrated in, in real life is this, um, uh, I apologize, I, I was getting ahead of myself. Uh, this thing about the, the rose petals allows us to imagine maybe uh, an interesting story, maybe a, a plot that is incorrect. And it might be inspirational to us, but it's still incorrect. And, and this type of thing happens <clears throat> frequently in, in our lives, especially uh, we're faced with this in a lot of the songs that uh, we're familiar with. But this one is, this is an example of a song that uh, sometimes is known as a children's song. And it says this, every promise in the book is mine. Every scripture, every verse, every line, all are blessings of his love divine. Every promise in the book is mine. And, and it's false. It's like, it's like somebody took um, something, maybe a rose petal, and they elaborated on it. And, and I think that the, the song is false. Now, I don't intend, I don't, I don't want to uh, shake your faith. 
You know, I, I do believe that there are scriptures, there are promises in the scripture that we can appropriate to our lives. They create an anchor for us. Amen. I'm, I'm, all, uh, I'm all passionate about that. But only to say that not every promise in the book is mine. It's not true that every scripture and every verse and every line are, are, blessed, are, are like for me. It's not all for me. And, and maybe I'll give you an example of another, another way that we can demonstrate that context matters a lot. A few years ago, I was driving in Pennsylvania, the state where I grew up. And I came to an intersection where there was a gas station on the corner. And I, I couldn't believe that the sign that I saw, I, I had to take a picture of this. It says, lunch special, we have worms. And then it goes on to describe the lottery uh, statistics. And I, you know, I just, I just shook my head. Like, seriously, someone would put up a, a sign like this. But what you have going on here is, is you have several large stories. And the one thing is the obvious one that this is a gas station and you know that you can go up, go to this place and get gas. But they're saying, in addition to gas, you can come into the store and we sell food in the store. And there's a special going on and we have a, uh, we, we sell lunch, come here for lunch. That's the one story. And they just gave you a rose petal. The other story is that there's, there's a lot of people that enjoy going fishing. And when they're going fishing, they need to have bait for their fish hooks. And, and they're appealing to that crowd. And they're saying, not only do we sell gas, not only do we sell food for humans, we also sell bait for your fish. And so come in here, come into the store. We have worms. <laughs> But they take these two unrelated rose petals and they put them together on the same sign and they really did a bad job of it. <laughs> so uh, just to illustrate how context makes a huge difference. Sometimes I hear children play this silly game. It goes something like this. A, a child will pop it on another friend. They'll say to them, hey, what's your favorite color? And the child says, well, uh, blue. And they say, what's your favorite number? Oh, uh, maybe six. And what's your favorite animal? Uh, maybe a fox. And then, then they laugh at him and say, oh, you're like a blue fox with six legs. You know, and they get a big kick out of this. And, and the reason that they think this is, is funny, the reason that they laugh at it is because they know it's not true. Yet the child may have actually tried to answer every question correctly. But the fact of the matter is that where there's context, there's, there's a bigger story going on. The fact of the matter is that we have a different, that our favorite color varies depending on the context. Our favorite number varies depending on the context. And so I told the children as I was presenting this to them that the next time that happens to you, uh, you simply need to ask some context-seeking questions. For example, you need to say, my favorite color, my favorite color of what? And that can give some context. Well, likewise, when we go into the scripture and we're reading the Bible, we need to be asking some context-seeking questions. And I have a few of them I'm going to talk about 
Again, I'm sure you can add to this list. But one of those questions that we can ask that's context-seeking is, is someone speaking in this passage? And if the answer is yes, we can ask, who is that that's speaking? And to whom are they speaking? The reason this can make such a difference is just take the book of Job for an example. And there you have a dialogue between four men who are disagreeing with each other. There's an argument going on in the book of Job. And if you just open up the book of Job and pull out one verse, you might be quoting the wrong side of the argument. You might be taking something completely out of context and, and placing value on that when, when you should be on the other side of the argument yourself. So it, it really helps to know some of, these, uh, some of the context of what's going on. What are the surrounding circumstances? Again, thinking of Job, we know that some of the surrounding circumstances are this, this man is suffering and, and they're trying to wrestle with the wrestle with the reality of suffering in their lives. And, and much more could be said. I'm not going to go all into the book of Job right now, but just to say that these kind of questions can help us to uncover what the context is. Where is the account placed in the big story? And what I mean in the big story, I mean like there's, you know, sometimes we read very short passages at a time. We might be reading about Elisha and maybe one of the miracles that Elisha performed. But but where is this in the whole, in the chronology of, of the kings, for example? Where is it in the bigger story? What did the original audience understand? Now, we don't always know the answer to these questions, uh, but we want to try. And it's interesting that sometimes even the original audience gets it wrong. For example, in the Gospels, in, in the Gospel of John, John relates this incident where Jesus said something to them. And the disciples all took this idea and started believing and spreading this idea that the Apostle John was not going to die. But John says, no, that was a misunderstanding. Uh, this is all that Jesus actually did say. So it, it's helpful in understanding context. It's helpful to know what did the original audience understand? Another question is, what type of literature is this? There are you know, a handful of different types of literature. For example, poetry. Uh, you, have, you have the wisdom literature. And then there's also history and, and, and other types as well. But to understand what type of literature it is will help us to be able to understand the intention of the author. Uh, who wrote this passage? Uh, again, some of these can be a little bit harder to understand. So at first glance, sometimes it's very easy to understand who wrote the passage, but sometimes we need to dig a little bit. And of course, there's large debates going on about you know, who wrote the book of Hebrews, for example, and, and maybe we don't know. And it's okay if we can't answer every question, but nonetheless, if I don't know, even that information, even that vulnerability of not being able to answer the question positions me better to meet the text than if I, um, you know, if I don't even ask the question at all. So who wrote the passage? And finally, when was this written? And so 
when we ask the question, when was this written? This helps us to plot it on the whole timeline of history. So I'm gonna go now into some examples of scripture that are uh, commonly misunderstood. And I, I wanna say as a disclaimer before I get into this, that I recognize that the things we believe from the scripture uh, are often, they're often tied up with our conscience. You know, we, we believe them, they become sacred to us. And, and I, believe that's a, I believe that's a good thing. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we do want to believe the correct thing. And so uh, we still need to like examine our beliefs. So I, I don't want to shake your faith uh, in what I present. If, if, something, if something I present here is wrong, I'm open to dialogue about that. I'm open to learn. Uh, what, what I do want us to agree on more than the examples that I give, what I do want us to agree on is that our goal here is to try to understand the author's intent. And I'm only giving some examples of things that I've found in my life of places where I, I think the author's intent gets missed. So uh, that disclaimer out of the way, let me go, on, go ahead and present some of these. And I do have them categorized in somewhat different categories. The first ones here are called incomplete thoughts. But there is overlap between the categories by all means. This one is taken out of the King James Version. Psalm 121 verse 1 says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. And that's the end of the verse. And in the King James Version, it ends with a period. But the word whence is actually uh, a questioning. It's, it's like saying, from where does, come, does my help come? And in some versions, I think more correctly, they would have um, you know, I think it would be more appropriate to have a question mark there, which would lead you on to verse two where the answer is. And, and so what David is not saying here is that I will lift up my eyes to the hills and that's where my help is coming from. He's, he's answering the question. He's saying, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So this is simply an example of an incomplete thought. And I've heard it quoted you know, and stop with verse one. But it's unfortunate if we don't, you know, like answer the question, answer it, answer it for what the author intended. Another example of this is a, a beautiful little snip out of Psalm 37, verse four, where we have this, it says, he will give you the desires of your heart. And this is the type of thing that people put on their mottos sometimes. <laughs> but what is the context? Like, does it, does it mean that that God is going to just give you everything that your heart desires. Well, no, the context helps us a lot. And, and in fact, all we need to do is read the complete verse. I think you should read the whole passage. The whole passage would help a lot more. But if we just read the complete verse, it says this, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What happened... What are your desires if you delight in something? Well, if you delight in something, you're desiring that thing. So, if, so he's saying, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, if you seek the Lord, you will find him, right? He will, you will, be, he will be found of you if you delight yourself in the Lord. 
Another one sometimes people misquote is where they say money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, you, you know, I can see that, that you might be quoting that out of the scripture, but missing the complete thought. The complete thought, uh, would you, you ought to go back and read the whole chapter, but even if we read a little bit more of the surrounding area, it says something like this. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So again, uh, it's, this is a, probably the most simple kind of misunderstanding. It's simply not reading enough. Now I want to talk about missing qualifiers. You remember the story of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. And there, one of those temptations was this from, from the devil. He's, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And it sounds very noble of the devil to be quoting the scripture like that. But, and, and, and maybe that would be cause for us to get tripped up. But what's actually going on here is that the devil is missing a qualifier. He's not, he's not portraying what the psalmist was actually intending. For example, this, this uh, excerpt, this quote, comes from Psalm 91, where the psalmist is saying this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. We know that it's not the devil's goal here to, to help Jesus dwell in the shelter of the Most High or abide in the shadow of the Almighty. No, quite the opposite. It's his goal to, to have him fall out of that. Verse 9 says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. Again, the devil isn't wanting, wanting, the, wanting Jesus to make the Lord his dwelling place. The devil himself is wanting to be the dwelling place. He's wanting to receive that, that uh, place of singularity in Jesus' heart. And then he goes on to this quote. This comes from verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The devil completely leaves that part out, to guard you in all your ways. What are the ways in this context? The ways are the ways of the Lord. The ways are living in that dwelling place of the Most High. But the devil completely leaves that out because he's not, he's not after that part of it. And so a uh, missing qualifier, I think, can badly misrepresent what was being intended by the author. Here's another example. And I love this verse. Uh, it's a favorite of, of many of us. From 2 Chronicles 7.14, says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And this is a beautiful 
reassurance that God gave to Solomon. Wonder when Solomon was like feeling concerned that you know is there going to be a way back if we sin? And so you can go and read that passage. Uh, you know, read the surrounding several chapters to give some context to this. But the reason I mentioned this here along with the missing qualifiers is that a few years ago, uh, near the start of COVID, uh, you know, some well-meaning Christians have started circulating this verse because they recognize that there's pestilence in the land. And, and I think from two unrelated places, I, I heard this verse being given uh, somewhat as an exhortation to Christians to, to humble ourselves and, and, and seek God's face. And the one video that I had listened to, someone sent it to me, uh, the, the person was talking about this verse, and they left out the detail of turning from their wicked ways. And it was like so glaringly obvious to me. I thought, how can how can he be missing that important part? You know, just just pray and seek God's face. That's all we're calling people to. When we ought to be like calling the church to turn from their wicked ways. We ought to be taught. We ought to be um, taking the whole thing together and and not missing those qualifiers. But there is another aspect in interpreting this scripture for us, and that is that even, even if you do take the whole thing together, what are we expecting in, in relation to healing their land? You know, as we would as we ask the questions about what this meant to the original audience, this was referring to the people of God. This was referring to uh, restoring uh, a place of blessing for the people of God. And I think that uh, we go astray in our interpretation if we think that this means that America is going to become great again or something like that. Rather, uh, this is hewing the people of God. This is more like saying judgment must begin at the house of God because that is the land. That is the kingdom. The kingdom now is the the land, so to speak, is the kingdom that's going on now. So uh, that's just a few thoughts in relation to that verse. Now I want to talk about the, you know, maybe another category could be called the topical context. And this is a very popular verse here that I have posted from Jeremiah 29, 11. We find this plastered on walls and, and, uh, you know, email signatures and whatnot. It says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We should be asking some context-seeking questions about this. We should be asking, who's speaking? Well, it says, declares the Lord. So the Lord is speaking. And, and through whom is the Lord speaking. The Lord is speaking through Jeremiah here. And what is the surrounding circumstances here? Well, the surrounding circumstance is that there's uh, recent captivity to, um, to Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah had prophesied the word from the Lord saying that this captivity is going to last for 70 years. 
And there was another prophet who came along. In fact, there was numerous prophets who were saying, this is going to be short-lived. This is going to be two years in captivity and you will be back. And we don't need to even read much of Jeremiah 29 to recognize that, that there's a quite a different tone here than what's often portrayed when people just present this one verse by itself. For example, in verse 8, Jeremiah says this, for, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So I want you to think about that. Jeremiah here is saying that there's going to be 70 years of exile before you will be brought back. And then he says, God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Most of the people who heard that sentence, most of the people who heard that message never got back from Babylon. They died there. Most of the people never saw this realized in their life. And yet we can read this and and like pretend that God is speaking this to us, that this promise in the book is ours, that this is a prosperity uh, blessing upon my business or something like this. No, no, you can't take that from this verse, not by any stretch of the imagination. That's, that's not what's going on here. Let me give you another example. Sometimes we see things like this circulate among the um, right-wing uh, Christian Arena, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I love that verse, and and it's good verse, but, you know, they'll plaster it over a picture of the flag like this. And so what you have going on, this is as bad as that that, uh, for sale sign at at Sunoco, where you have two unrelated messages going on. They they do not fit together at all. What's being implied by this message of of blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and plastering that, putting that on top of a flag, is they're implying saying, this nation is America. This, This nation that is blessed by God is America, which is like so far from the truth. The, the context of this message is, this is written by, by King David. Do you think he had a vested interest in America? <laughs> By no means, right? King David was invested in the kingdom of God. He was invested in, in Israel. That was the nation that was blessed when God was their Lord. And if we want to appropriate this to our lives today, we need to say, what is the nation whose God is the Lord? Where is that blessing found? Well, that blessing is found in the kingdom of God. So yes, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's not some political government. That's the kingdom of God. Right now you can go uh, to Amazon and buy this t-shirt. And on it, it says this. This is a scripture quotation. It says, and saith unto him, 
All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. It's unbelievable that people actually put a verse like that on on a t-shirt. Is this promise in the book yours? No, definitely not. This, This was a quotation from the devil in the temptation in the wilderness for Jesus. So, um, like, yeah, words fail to to describe like how how badly applied this the scripture can be, but the the context matters so much in in under in reading these scriptures. <clears throat> Here's another one that we might hear more frequently: uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. From Matthew 18. And so, you know, when everybody's off to a church conference somewhere and, and we're the, you know, a select few families left behind, uh, we might appropriate this verse and say, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'm among you. But is that what Jesus is appealing to? Is that what he's talking about? No, uh, go and read this for yourself. But the context is church discipline. The church, the, the context here, um, yeah, like I said, is church discipline and Jesus is is like supporting this idea from, or or I should say this idea is predicated on what's already given in the law from many years before, <clears throat> where you have, you have this, for example. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or, or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And, you know, if you're familiar with the with the epistles, you know that Paul said something similar. Paul said something similar with respect to uh, admitting a charge against an elder. He said that should not be done except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. <clears throat> so that's the... That's like the, the greater context where this is uh, positioned, that because it's a disciplinary action, there needs to be at least two or three gathered there. That's where Jesus is in, among them. Now I want to go on to another category, and I, I recognize that this is not actually a scripture verse here, uh, but it's something that people often draw out of the scripture. Uh, there's a you know particular time of year when we start seeing Um, things related to the advent of Christ. And we might see something like this where you have the three wise men and a caption over it saying the wise men still seek Jesus or wise men still seek him. We we ought to be asking some questions about this. Uh, What I would call this is a confusion of the homonyms because we're using wise in two different senses. Uh, it doesn't take much research to learn that the wise men who came at Jesus' birth were the Magi. This was, you know, the equivalent to the sorcerers and uh, the magicians uh, that we read about different times throughout Scripture. And what the Christians, uh, I believe, are not intending to say is that they're not intending to advocate for sorcery. They're not intending to say that what we ought to be doing now is learning to be magicians. 
But certainly what the scripture is not saying is that that um, true heavenly wisdom is is what was represented here. You know, like like this were the, these were the magi. And, and it's a fact of history, and there's things to be learned from that, but it's a misappropriated, um, I think it's a confusion of terms to say wise men still seek him. Let's uh, consider this with respect to maybe something that's actually in the scripture. There's this parable of the talents that, that you're familiar with, no doubt. And uh, in, in the... Um, King James Version, I believe the old King James and the new King James, both refers to this as talents. And talents is not something, a word that we frequently use uh, as Jesus used it here. What Jesus was referring to about this master giving talents to his servants, what Jesus was referring to was that the master gave them money. He invested money in them. And that was what they could go and, 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 and further invest and make good on. But what happens sometimes is that we confuse the homonyms and we say, uh, well, you know, somebody's gifted in, in music or they're gifted in this way or that way. That's their talent. And you need to like make the most of the talents that you have been given. And referring to like the, the abilities or maybe even the spiritual giftings that they have been given. But that completely confuses the word talents, and that's not what Jesus was saying in this parable. Now, I'm not going to try to interpret the parable for you, but what the disciples understood was that the master gave money to the servants. And, and that's something that we should understand when we read that parable because if we don't, if, if we do understand that, we will ask this question, and this is an important question. What does the money in that parable represent? Now, if you just think that talents means your gifts and abilities, you're going to miss that important question. And now, if by chance the money represents your abilities, then you might have gotten that answer right by mistake. But I think it's important to think this through in the correct order so that we can like actually objectively uh, seek to understand the meaning of the parable. Here's another one from Isaiah. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? Does that mean to be patient and enduring uh, as you uh, expect his arrival, so, you know, so to speak? Or does wait mean to serve like a waiter does when they serve somebody? And that might not be readily apparent. And I'm not necessarily, I'm not going to take up our time to try to explore that question, but only to say that it can be understood, understood in two quite drastically different ways. And, and we ought to like do the work of trying to figure this out. Now, I will say that my own opinion is that that this means to um, to have patient endurance, but and and I think that that's how many times people use it. So I'm not uh, giving this as uh, a correction or whatever, but but it is something that can be confusing, and so we ought to to take the time to research that.
And maybe you can show me to be incorrect about my opinion there too. That's okay. <clears throat> another one, another word that's often confused as a homonym would be offend. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Well, what's it mean to offend? Well, the word offend does not mean like we popularly use the word to kind of like hurt someone's feelings or, you know, like they, where someone feels a little bit slighted. To, to offend is to like create a stumbling block or to trip them up and cause them or lead them into sin. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. There's another category that I would say are simply outdated words. And you'll find this more in the Old English Bibles, uh, simply because uh, the English language changes, of course. And, and this could be a huge, you know, there, there could be so many examples of this. But just to point out a few, John 14, verse 2 says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. <clears throat> And the word mansions is often misunderstood there, and, and people take that little rose petal and they, you know, fancifully imagine, um, you know, mansions in the sky and, and things of this sort. And I did a whole talk on this, uh, another episode on the Strength of Strength channel, and so I don't intend to reiterate that, but only to say that this has nothing to do with mansions in the sky, uh, as would be my understanding. Another place you might run across this is in Matthew 19, 14. Jesus said, suffer the little children and forbid them not to come unto me. Uh, if you run across things like this and you kind of raise your eyebrows and say, what, what's that mean to suffer little children and forbid them not? Uh, you know, it can be helpful simply to cross-reference with a more modern translation or to look up the meanings of the words and, and, and that will be uh, helpful in understanding the the intended meaning. The final two things that I want to point out are simply what I would call sloppy interpretation. Uh, there's this verse that's many times misquoted, and that is from Ephesians 2, where it says, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, as is the gift of God. So many times people will uh, put the word alone in there, you know, like by grace are you saved through faith alone. But that's not actually what the scripture says. It's not included in the text. And so that should be the easiest kind to overcome. Or here's another example. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And many times people take this verse and they they um, will think that it means that every knee will bow. But in fact, it doesn't say that. It only says that every knee should bow. So it's quite a drastically different takeaway. All right. Uh, so I want to just tell you a, a story. And this story comes out of, <clears throat> out of the CLP reader that's called or the, the reader, The Road Less Traveled, and it's, it's written by Agnes Ranney. <clears throat> the story is titled The Desert Miracle. 
I'm not going to read you the story. I'm going to just tell you my paraphrase of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. The story is about three siblings, Roger, Janet, and little, little brother, Freddie. Three siblings who moved with their parents to Southern Oregon to begin farming on a ranch. But summer had come, and with it, a drought. The river that supplied water to their cattle and homestead was fast drying up. Roger figured that they only had a few days worth of water remaining in the river. They wished they had a well, but it was far too expensive to dig one now, especially without any promise of hitting water supply anyway. The children were at home alone for part of the day while their parents went, to a load, went for a load of water from their neighbors who had a well. <clears throat> while the parents were gone, the children found some cool shade in an old dugout on the bank of a dry river. This dugout was thought to have been the cold cellar for previous settlers many years before. While relaxing in the cellar, Janet suddenly discovered an old treasure chest sitting on a shelf. The children eagerly retrieved the chest and after breaking off the lock, they opened it and found what appeared to have been treasures from a little girl. There was an old doll, there were some beads, and even a diary. Janet was most intrigued by reading the diary, which described the struggles of another family who lived here probably 100 years before. Just like Janet's family, they had struggled through a dry summer that was only made worse by their loneliness. The closing entry of the journal read that their father had finally sold the cows, covered the well under the cottonwood trees, and they're moving away. Later that day, Janet glanced up from her work and noticed the row of cottonwood trees in their yard. Suddenly, she remembered what she read in the diary and she raced out to the trees in hopes of finding the well. With the help of her brothers, the children eventually did find the well, still covered by an old barn door. When they removed it, they found that the well was deep and had a strong supply of water. At about that time, the parents came home to their children who excitedly told them of the great discovery which would save their homestead. And I, I love this story because I think it illustrates how we can approach the Bible. As Janet approached the, uh, the old diary, so let's talk a little bit about learning from the Bible. Some of the things we can learn. We can learn the character and nature of God in reading the scriptures. We can learn the history of the world to tell us the big story. We can learn the nature of man. We can see examples of failure, and we can see examples of faithfulness. And these are very useful in, in charting the course of our lives. We can see principles of life, like how the world works, um, you know, like spiritual and natural laws. We can learn the meaning and the purpose of life. And we can learn how people interact with God. And finally, we can change by reading the scriptures. We can change who I am in the story. So I want to invite us to enter the story. And how can we enter the story? To enter the story is to make it our own. And I want to give an example from the scripture. I wouldn't need to give it from the scripture, but I'll just use this example from the scripture because I assume you're familiar with it, of, a, of how we can place ourselves in the story. 
And this comes out of Matthew 15. There's several different of the Gospels, I believe, that refer to this account. But in Matthew 15, it says this. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, as we place ourselves in this story, I want us to think about ourselves as being like that Canaanite woman. But we'll get to a little bit more of that later. Jesus' response was this, but he did not answer her a word. And, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. That ought to make our hearts sink, you know, if that promise in the book is ours. If, if that's where we find ourselves, that ought to make our hearts sink. But Jesus went on to say this. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now for sure we should have be giving up hope, right? But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. As, as that woman, how would you take this answer? Would she, like maybe one of her ancestors did thousands of years before, say, am I a dog? How is she going to relate to this, this little parable that Jesus gave, this kind of cryptic way of saying, I'm not going to do anything for you, when Jesus said it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? What she did is she entered the story, and that's the point here. That's the point I want to bring out here. She entered the story. She recognized what Jesus was saying in this. She recognized who the children were and who the dogs were. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs, that's me. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus' blessing is on those who can like appropriate and enter the story and recognize where we belong in that story in humility like she like she had. Like we would have much more in common with her than than with the children. You know, we are not, most of us on, on this call, I'm sure, are not uh, of the children of Israel. You know, we are the outsiders. And she accepted that. And she said, yes, I am an outsider. And all we need is the crumbs. And, and Jesus blessed that, that faith. Another way to enter the story is to use our imagination. Now, this is not to just go all over the place with our imagination. We still use it within the constraints of understanding context and, and like learning what the author's intent or trying to, trying to realistically understand the author's intent. But this is portrayed so well by the words of this song written by William Parker. Tell me the stories of Jesus I love to hear. Things I would ask him to tell me if he were here. Scenes by the wayside, tales of the sea, 
stories of Jesus, tell them to me. First, and this is how this is where he enters the story. First, let me hear how the children stood round his knee. And I shall fancy, that means I shall imagine. I shall fancy his blessing resting on me. Words full of kindness, deeds full of grace, all in the love light of Jesus' face. Notice where he enters the story. He enters the story where Jesus blessed the children and said, blessed of, of such is the kingdom of God. He's saying that is where I'm going to fit into this story. Into the city, I'd follow the children's band, waving a, pan, a, a branch of the palm tree high in my hand. One of his heralds, yes, I would sing loudest hosannas. Jesus is king. And this place of starting as a child and, and becoming not only a child, but a citizen of the king, of the kingdom is just an awesome, I think it's an awesome way of entering the story. Another way that I would like to say we can enter the story is by entering the place of blessing. And the place of blessing, uh, this was something I learned from the late Harold Weaver Sr., uh, who I used to go to church with. And he would often say, if you want to be blessed, you need to go into the place of blessing. And in my own words, what, what we mean by that is that there are, for, for example, here in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, there's a place where the kingdom of heaven is realized. And that place is a place where people are poor in spirit. If you want to realize the kingdom of heaven, Come into that place of blessing, and you will find that blessing. There's a place where there's comfort, where comfort exists. If you want to find that comfort, put yourself in, in the place of one who is willing to mourn over your sin, and you will find that blessing. There's, there's a people group who will inherit the earth. If you want to be a part of that people group, learn the way of meekness. And those people are blessed, and so on and so forth. Finally, believe. I think more than anything, believing opens our heart to entering the story. It is now our story. We're shaped by the story. Our identity changes from being the outsider, from being the Canaanite, to being an adopted child of the Father. In entering the story and believing, we're able now to communicate, to find and speak with the, the plot author. We may even find ourselves praying the scripture because it is now our story. As John wrote here, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is something that can be realized in our own lives. Uh, so that's all I have to share. God bless you. Thank you, Brother Darvin. I appreciated that practical um, insight. I appreciated the examples that you shared on misused verses. And I feel like where you began, you started with saying that when your children get to a certain age, you give them a Bible. and 
out of that, you're, you're thinking about these kinds of things and tips and how to read the scriptures to gain their meaning. And I appreciated the, the five questions that you shared to ask. But what that makes me think of is to be more like children in reading the scripture, ask the questions instead of coming with uh, with an idea that we know what we're going to find and we know what it's going to do for us. Come with the idea that we're not, we might not know what we're going to find and we might not know the impact that it will have on our lives. So thank you very much for your time here this morning. Um, I would like to open it up for questions or comments or discussion on what we heard here this morning about um, the things that Brother Darvin shared and anything else about reading the Bible. If you have some tips as well, feel free to share them or things that have been impactful for you in opening up the word um, to a better understanding. Maybe while you're thinking about that, I feel like the scriptures is, the scriptures are, a, a, the Bible is a book that we handle differently than most other literature. And it's probably rightfully so. But I noticed in the examples, there was a lot of like trimming right down to, you know, a phrase that we like and um, cherry picking thoughts out of context. And I know we probably do that with with other books, but it seems like we're especially good at it with the Bible. Um, do you have any idea on why that is the case? I mean, I know there's there's probably a lot of answers to that, but could you speak a little bit to what do you think has aided that in our handling of the scriptures? Yeah, well, maybe one maybe we're influenced by the idea that every promise in the book is ours, right? And so we don't need to dig very deep. We can just get them from anywhere. Mm -hmm. I had to wonder if it wasn't the, the breaking up of the scriptures into verses and chapters. Um, I know that the chapter divisions was probably around the 13th century, if I'm right. Um, and then the verse divisions were actually put in the mid 16th century, I believe. Um, so I, actually not even that long ago. And by doing so, it seems like it's in little fragments already. And so it's easy to grab one of these little fragments, whereas it's been helpful to me to try to remove that concept from my own mind and try to look at it as a book as a book instead of um, all these little broken up fragments. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm amazed how those five simple questions that you asked, um, I'll just review them. Is someone speaking and if who to whom, what are the surrounding circumstances um, where is the account placed in the big story? What did the original audience understand? And what type of lit literature is this? Some very basic questions to ask. But when we do consider the answers to those questions, it will, it can easily put 
everything into context. Um, it doesn't mean that we're automatically going to understand what's going on, but it can go a long way into um, to understanding that better. I don't want my what I want to set or what I want to ask here to come out of get taken out of proportion. But at what point do we start, you know, thinking we have to have all the proper answers or the proper or the proper theological behind it? That it be that doesn't where where the Bible is no longer where the faith is no longer simple and easy to be understood. Um, If, yeah, I guess, I mean, I don't think, I mean, there's a place, like, at what point is it too much? Like, are you trying to prove yourself too much? I don't think this is what it was. I'm not trying to say it was, but it's just a something I think about uh, uh, posing there. Something I think about, I don't want to dive into it too much, you know, bring it, make it unsimple anymore, complicate things. If I'm making any sense, I don't know if I'm, yeah, if I'm bringing it out properly or not. What I bring out properly, what I have in my mind or not, but yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Bradley. Um, just experientially, as as I learn, uh, the scriptures become more simple to me. You know the the framework becomes more and more basic. I'm not sure why that is, but I think that I think that the basics are maybe more obvious, you know. Yeah, I don't want to get to the point where I'm like thinking I have to, you know, where I can't take something at face value, like where. So, for example, you read uh, about the head covering, where you start so common scriptures like that. People take and they say, "Well, you know, if you actually study into it, you don't need to." And that's totally false, in my belief. And I don't want to get to the point where it puts me in danger of doing that. If that may, if that make sense where I'm coming from. Sure. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. And I would also agree that increased study on the subject is not going to um, bring us out on the wrong side of that issue, you know. Right. Yeah, it's more if you go at it with an open mind, not with a closed mind. So so we do walk by faith. And as you look at someone like Abraham's life, you recognize that in his walk of faith, he made some big mistakes. And this is not to justify the mistakes in our lives, but, but I want to recognize in, in humility that we get things wrong sometimes. And I get, I get things wrong sometimes. <clears throat> Just because I was critiquing some examples there, I, I don't want to like come across as, as a critical person or whatever. Like maybe, maybe I got something wrong, you know? But but the goal is to try to understand what is intended, right? And where we get things wrong, I think it's maybe like like our bodies. I, I found it helpful to think about think about it this way. Just like 
we have life and and we have health. It's and it's a little bit related and it's a little bit unrelated. But if the health gets so poor, eventually we may lose our life from it. Uh, however, you can live for a considerable length of time with illness or with some kind of, you know, infirmity. And I think that's kind of where maybe like wrong doctrine gets us. You know, it makes us sick. It makes us spiritually maybe crippled. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that we're not alive. It doesn't mean that we're not a child of God. Uh, it doesn't mean that we have necessarily lost our salvation by having a wrong doctrine. But but it kind of matters because it's 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 our health, you know, and Perfect. and at some point we're going to lose our life over it if we don't care for our health. So just a little analogy that I found helpful. I really appreciate your whole talk and everything. I was in no way trying to critique. It's just I mean I, I it's just something that I'm aware of that I don't want to get to the point where I'm trying to explain things away. So thank you very much. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you bring something up, Bradley, that is helpful. Um, You brought up people who will dive into a passage and try to find a deeper meaning to, to get rid of it. And I've also seen someone dive into 1 Corinthians 11, since you brought that example up. And use historical evidence and and you know everything that's available around that to underline the message that Paul um, had. And I don't think we need to shy away from going deeper if our hearts are right. If if that like that point that if our hearts are to seek Christ, we will find Him. And. I can agree with uh, Brother Darwin that the the simple message of of truth just becomes more real and richer in my experience. Um, So I I think I can understand where your question is coming from, the idea of getting too intellectual and being able to go away, put the scriptures away. But there's there's an issue of the heart there that we need to address. And you can intellectually study the scriptures and the historical evidence and whatever is available to you with a good heart and discover truth, or you can dis- you can study the same things with a with a wrong intent or with a bad heart and come up with false doctrines. And so I think therein lies the the crux of the matter. W- do we go to the scriptures? like a child willing to see what is there or do we go to the scriptures with an idea of what we would like it to say and we'll get very different results i also appreciated the the thoughts that were shared this morning especially the one uh, that brother darwin pointed out to begin with uh, the intents of the authors if we if we're seeking to for the intent of the author's message or what is he trying to tell us and also from some of the other brethren here that was brought out too. Um, if we, I think there's different ways that we can read the scripture. If we're reading it to try to justify us in something wrong or whatever, we need to search ourselves. It's our, it's our own responsibility. We can't, nobody else can do that for us. 
why ask yourself the question why am i reading what am i looking for here if i'm looking for to get rich quick you know promises and stuff you can find a lot that justifies the love of money but are we looking to do i want to be closer to god what is god trying to tell me in here uh, how can i purify myself is is a big difference of how we read the scripture Yes, amen. Amen. I, I appreciate the prayer of David in um, one of the verses in Psalms 119. He says, open my eyes, Lord, so I can behold the wondrous things in your law. I think there's the, the attitude of his heart in recognizing that to understand truth, it takes an opening of the eyes by God himself. Well, I think we can uh, bring this to a close. Thank you for everyone who participated in the discussion. Um, this has been a blessing to consider uh, handling the word in a way that opens it up to our understanding. Uh, thank you again, Brother Darwin, for bringing this talk for us this morning. God bless you for putting the work in. Um, Maybe if you would give us a closing prayer, and then I will make some announcements about the next talk. Our Father in heaven, we're humbled to, to know you and to, to recognize, to, to learn who you are uh, through the scriptures that you provided to us. We thank you for this gift. And we come to you as children. We want to be humble, teachable, and innocent. Thank you, Father, that you have shown your love to us in Jesus. And we want to learn to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you for each of the brothers and sisters gathered out on this call today. May you bless their lives. And I pray that the message that was shared could be a benefit to them. And, and if anything I shared would have been a stumbling block, Father, I pray that that would um, not, uh, not be a stumbling block to them, but, but rather that we could explore and learn and find your heart. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming this morning. Thank you for joining us on here. Um, our next time of meeting is on July 1st. And we will be having two talks on that day. We have a special event there. Um, the first one will be at 6 o'clock, same time, uh, same place here on Strength to Strength. And Brother Zach Johnson from Boston We'll be sharing on the early Christian understanding of the empire. And the theme for our event on July 1st is, would Jesus be a Christian nationalist? And it's interesting that July 1st is actually Canada Day, um, similar to your July 4th here in the United States. So I think it's a fitting talk um, for a national day like that um, for the Canadians. Um, and then at 1130, 
So on July 1st at, at six o'clock, we'll have Brother Zach Johnson. And at 11.30 a.m., we'll have Brother David Berceau share on the kingdom that turned the world upside down. And you'll recognize that as the title of his book, um, which is to celebrate the 20th anniversary since the writing of the kingdom that turned the world upside down. So we will have a discussion time with him about the book, about the message, and about its far-reaching impact of that book, which has um, had an impact on my life and my wife and I as well. So join us again on July 1st at 6 a.m. Eastern time to hear Brother Zach Johnson share about the early Christian understanding of the empire. And then again at 11.30 on July 1st with Brother David Berceau, and he will share on the kingdom that turned the world upside down. I'm looking forward to that event and hopefully to see you all there with us. God be with you. Thanks again for joining us this morning. Um, God bless you as you seek to serve him and honor the king. Go with God. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. <laughs>